For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how the city of Tucson is addressing the issue of migrant aid shelters at capacity. Go backstage at Tucson High Magnet School to preview the new play, Our Border Town. Tucson's Poet Laureate, T.C. Tolbert, on being recognized this week by the Academy of American Poets. And what would you do with the blessing of extra time to be alive? Meet a young man who's learned to embrace every second. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. An influx of asylum-seeking migrants at the country's southern border has prompted cities, including Tucson, to take steps to house these new arrivals while they wait to go to other parts of the country. Tucson opened a temporary shelter in a recreation center last week to take in the overflow of people from shelters run by Catholic Community Services. Nancy Montoya reports. Let's see, guys. Let's see. Oh, go! The room is filled with Red Cross provided cots and blankets and kids, lots of kids. Andy Squire, the spokesman for the Tucson City Manager's Office, says they had only a day or so to turn an activity room in this City of Tucson Recreation Center into a makeshift shelter. Um, the mayor, the city manager, and our chief of police, Christopher Magnus, um, were contacted uh, by our, our community faith-based partners and nonprofit partners, Catholic Community Services being the lead on that, letting them know that they were at full capacity and that Customs and Border Patrol had informed them that they were going to be bringing in 100 individuals, most families. If we did not have capacity, they were simply going to be leaving them at the uh, Greyhound station. That's what happened in 2014 when a wave of unaccompanied minors and families who had cleared the first phase of the asylum process found themselves stranded at the bus depot. In 2014, it was chaos, and if that happened again, the results, says Squire, would be worse. It was at that point that we had to say, okay, how do we address this? Because it becomes a public health and safety issue, and it's going to demand resources of police and firefighters if you have several hundred people potentially dropped off at a facility um, that is not equipped to handle them. Yo me llamo Igael Mendez Pérez, yo vengo de Guatemala. While on the overnight Border Patrol transport from El Paso, Igaliel Perez says he held his six-year-old daughter, watching her sleep. He said, just like the past two weeks while traveling through Mexico to get to the border, he was scared, not for him, but for his daughter. On the road, he says, we suffered hunger and thirst. El mío lo daba yo a ella para que ella no aguantaba hambre. I went without so that she could eat a little and have some water. When he arrived in Tucson, he was greeted by a group that had planned for all those on the bus to have a safe place to sleep, shower, and get some food. Volunteers from the city parks and recs department took supplies from the Tucson food bank and had a meal ready. Instead of being scared, Braley Maria, Perez's six-year-old daughter, 
was delighted, and she was hungry. Yo comí frijol, carne, arroz. ¿Te gustó? Sí. Uh, and, and it's babies, and it's, it's diapers and feeding and all the things that go along with that, health issues, the whole thing. The manager reached out to our parks director, Brent Dennis, and said, Brent, would it be possible to use the facilities, um, some of our rec center facilities possibly, to shelter these folks, considering they only need approximately two to three days to transition through to get to their next destination. Brent said, I'm sure we can make this work. Within two days or so, the rec center did go from empty to filled with cots, blankets, bottles of water, fresh donated clothes. And most important, says Perez, the room was filled with hope and kindness. First, I thank God for opening the door, says Perez. His eyes filled with tears as he held Brady very tightly. He added, there is no way I can thank all these people and this city. But one day, you will be rewarded for your kindness and what you have done for us. What does that tell you about this town, this community, the people who live here, yeah. who said, we'll do what we have to do, we'll pull together if we have to. What does that say about our community? Yeah, we're, we're an amazing community. The Tucson community is extremely giving, and it is amazing the dignity with which this community treats individuals who are, are transitioning through our communities, trying to get to wherever their final destination is. There's still more to figure out, especially if this crisis continues. However, city and county officials are working together to figure out the next steps. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. This border policy, prevention through deterrence, the one thing they didn't count on when they made that policy was people's desperation. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in the middle of summer. I say, don't do this. Don't cross the desert. It is so dangerous to cross. People are dying out here. They look at me and say, gringo, would you, if your kids were hungry, risk your life out there? I hope I would say yes, but I've never had to make that kind of decision. I just don't know. I do know, though, that those guys are the most courageous people I have ever met because they are willing to risk everything for their kids and their families. We just heard Ella, an actor at Tucson High Magnet School, performing as Reverend John Fife in an excerpt from the play Our Border Town. Fife is a humanitarian leader, co-founder of the Sanctuary Movement and No More Deaths. In this play, his words and those of many others involved with immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border become both dialogue and testimony. The play is debuting at Tucson High Magnet School, and I visited the school's little theater to meet with the creators of Our Border Town. My name is Art Almquist, and I'm uh, one of the theater teachers at Tucson High and a co-director of Our Border Town. Was this play born out of a collaborative process, or was it an idea that someone had to pitch? It was absolutely collaborative. Julian, my co-director, was a student of mine when he was a freshman, and it was my first year teaching here at Tucson High. And he and I were talking with my wife, Amy, and we were saying, man, wouldn't it be great if there was an awesome modern play that dealt with the immigration crisis that we're all dealing with right now? And we likened it back to a play called The Laramie Project, which dealt with the murder of Matthew Shepard and was done in a very interesting way where uh, the company that did it, Tectonic Theater, they interviewed people and put their stories up on stage. It sounds like what we're talking about is a very socially aware and very politically aware 
performance uh, that you're putting together. How does that fit into the mission here for the Little Theater and your drama department at Tucson High? Was there pushback on the idea of doing a project that was so closely connected to current events? I have always believed, and Julian remembers this, we did a play his second year called Quilt that was a musical about the AIDS memorial quilt. I believe that our teenagers, our students that we work with, are really smart and really savvy, and they want to do quality work, and they want to push the envelope a little bit. And, and then also, I really believe in using theater and art as a way to incite people to talk, to think. So it absolutely fits with everything that we are about here. How long have you been teaching here? 23 years. In that time, have you seen a shift in the tastes, the, the hunger from the student body to see and be in productions like this? When I was in high school, we did Guys and Dolls. <laughs> that felt pretty edgy. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to know kind of what you've seen over more than two decades of teaching. If you've seen a shift in the students' attitudes towards what they're performing. Honestly, I haven't. I have found there's something about being that age where you want to fight a little bit. You're, you're defining yourself and you want to put yourself out there and uh, take a stand for something. I shouldn't speak for all teenagers, but a lot of my students have certainly felt that way. I'm Amy Alpquist, and I am the playwright of Our Border Town. This wasn't a traditional narrative play, was it, in, in the terms of the way it was built? One of the things that was important to me, um, I'm a gringa, and it, this was not really my story. It was important to me as the person putting the piece together to compile all the different stories that exist in our region. By doing that, I allow those people, the real characters who are named after these real life people, to voice their stories, their truth. So it really becomes sort of like a docudrama, um, along with some multimedia elements. We have slides and images of the real people, of some of the real situations and stories. And so that was very important to me to sort of take myself as a playwright out of it, but actually put in the stories and the real life experiences of those people I was able to interview. How was it that these stories and experiences were collected? I was able to chat with people from the Border Patrol. I was able to chat with people in the humanitarian community. And fortunately, I was able to talk with um, people that were in detention centers, people who have crossed the border, people who have worked with people who have crossed the border. And even at Tucson High itself, there are a number of students who come from undocumented families or are undocumented themselves. And I was actually able to speak with a Tucson High student who we renamed in the show for his own uh, safety, but uh, was able to interview those folks to, to get the true picture of, of what makes Tucson such an interesting community for this border issue. Returning to one of the lead performers, I asked Ella about her feelings when first reading the script for Our Border Town. I remember distinctly, I was in my bedroom and I kind of sat back, I closed my little binder and I just was like a wow moment because there were so many ways this play could have been written, but I really love this way because it gave the chance to like sit back and let Hispanic people and people who are truly affected by this tell this story 
and it was done in a way that it did not bash anyone's beliefs. It really explained each side and how they thought, because I, of course, have my own beliefs. And I sat flipping through the play. I'd write, read some people's lines, and I'd think, oh, okay, yeah. But then when you really got into it and you read their stories and why they think these things, you would understand, yes, I get it now, right? And I didn't feel guilty for any part of my opinion in the play. It let me think through why I thought these things, and I just, I really love it. It was beautifully written, truly. What about encountering a point of view that was very different from your own? Were you challenged by any of the content? It did really make me think. Uh, for example, the Border Patrol agents, when I got to read their monologues, I, of course, want to be angry with them and think, how could you? You're mistreating these people. It feels wrong. It, but you see their stories and why they do it and that they some of them truly want to help these people. I had to sit back and just rethink of my own opinions on Border Patrol and go, okay, they're not evil, they're human. I really got to see the humanity in this play and everyone. What about the challenges of being an actor who's playing across gender? Uh, it's really interesting because, of course, my directors, they told me, don't feel the pressure to lower your voice like a man. We had someone from the Laramie Project come in, right? He talked to us all about how to work our character, like, from in to out, right? So mostly for me, it's just thinking, how would this older man, Reverend John, I think he's 78 years old, how would he act? How would he move? Rather than thinking, I'm a man. I'm a man doing this role. I was just taking it from me, Ella, playing Reverend John Fife, who's older and just trying to characterize him into myself. If Reverend Fife comes and sees the play, would you rather know or not know that he's in the audience that night? Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I think maybe don't know. Maybe if he just saw it and then like I see him after and go, wow, rather than thinking the whole time as I'm up there, I'm like, oh, I hope Reverend John thinks I'm doing all right. And he's not going, I don't stand like that. I would never say that, you know. <laughs> From being around productions, I know that when the actors are really engaged and consumed with what they're producing, they talk about it amongst themselves. When the play isn't that engaging, they're talking about other things. Yeah. They're texting and they're not, they're not into it. But have there been uh, behind-the-scenes conversations, maybe even debates about some of this material between your castmates? Yes. Uh, I remember when we first did a read-through, all of us talked about our own experiences. Um, we really got into discussions of where we came from. And so the majority of students, we tend to have similar opinions. But there has been discussion, deep discussion, about a lot of it has been our concerns of playing the other side. So we'll talk about what does it mean to be on the other side and we'll get down into it and why they think this way and how these things look. And sometimes it's fear or anxiety saying, I don't want to portray this wrong. Um, and sometimes it's talking truly like, this is what I believe. I, I feel an adherence here. I don't think I can do it. And sometimes it's just talking about, wow, this play. And I just really want to do a good job is usually the consensus. Tucson High Magnet School's production of Our Border Town opens April 25th with performances every weekend through May 11th. The play does contain mature language and situations. T.C. Tolbert was nominated as Tucson's Poet Laureate in March of 2017. Tolbert is a leader in the field of transgender and genderqueer poetics, exemplified by the groundbreaking collection Troubling the Line, which they co-edited in 2013. This week, T.C. Tolbert made history by being one of 13 poets across the country recognized with a $100,000 grant and a fellowship from the Academy of American Poets. I asked Tolbert about the goals for using this grant in our community. 
two outcomes, essentially. One is creating a civic project that engages um, the community in some way and, and makes poetry more accessible and, and possible for a member of the community who may not already have access to it. So I'm working with uh, trans, non-binary, and queer folks, particularly youth, um, although I'll certainly do workshops with elders in our community and you know professionals, folks in various settings. Um, but I'm going to focus on youth and doing poetry workshops with them, which will then lead to recordings of them reading their poems and then installing those in various places around town, primarily bathrooms, <laughs> which we can talk about in a minute. And so that will be my civic project. In addition, they were also really clear, we also want you to use some of these funds to make space in your life for you to write and do this project. And so it works out really well for me because essentially I piece together a teaching life. So I teach here, I also teach out of state and I do a sort of pick up teaching gigs here and there. So it really allows me to not take on extra teaching jobs outside of the U of A for the year so that I can just focus on on this project. Okay, so two important questions have arisen. Uh, the first is, when you talk about bathrooms being the focus point, some people are going to immediately understand the iconography of that and why you chose it. To others, it's going to seem like, uh, do you really want that uh, attached to this project? Is this really the arena that you want to be in? So explain that part. Yes. So bathrooms really have become the focal point of trans rights and uh, trans safety. And I think the public imagination about the space that trans people occupy in bathrooms has become so outsized. And my thinking is, you know, trans people, we spend so much time trying to be small and completely invisible in bathrooms, right? And just go do our business and get out. And just like everybody, really, in a bathroom. You know, I, I'm constantly checking the research on this. There's no proof. There's no evidence. There are no cited experiences of trans people harassing cisgender people in bathrooms. It's just trans people are really not a threat. Um, yet there's this, you know, fear. I thought, well, let's do two things. Let's let trans voices actually be really loud <laughs> and take up a lot of space in a bathroom setting in a safe way, right? So that trans people in, in their lived experiences are not being endangered. Um, so these would be recordings. And let's also actually give trans people and, and trans poets a captive audience, if you will, right? <laughs> you're there, you're listening to the poems. And, and that to me can actually be a really joyful experience. Well, TC, tell me, when you're working with these trans, non-binary and queer youth, what modes of expression are they most hungry for? What are the spaces that they really want their voices to be heard in? Mm. What I hear is this idea that we don't want to have to fit into someone else's mold or storyline of who we are supposed to be. I think there can be sometimes a, a, a bit of a claustrophobic narrative about what it means to be trans, where you have to have experienced this as a child or claimed this identity by age three or whatever it is. And that is really limiting, I think, to people's real lived experiences of gender 
and uh, of life and love and acceptance of themselves and their bodies and who they want to become. And I also think allowing um, trans non-binary genderqueer folks to talk about things other than being trans non-binary and genderqueer, I think that is part of their lives and can be absolutely big and deeply important, of course, to, to their lived experience. And so are things that they're studying or, you know, hobbies they have, et cetera. So allowing folks to be interested in other things as well um, and to bring, to bring that to bear on conversations about their identity. Well, in closing, uh, any more thoughts about the importance of this award and this recognition in your life? Honestly, I just feel so deeply humbled by it. I'm a worker, you know, <laughs> I love to, to do this work. I, I love interacting with folks in the community who I haven't met yet, right? That is one of my favorite things in the world to do. I immediately am like, okay, let's go get to work. <laughs> you know, let's, let's not dilly-dally too much. Arizona Illustrated recently featured Tucson Poet Laureate T.C. Tolbert reading from their work. You can find that video on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. An unexpected experience can have a profound impact on a person's life, for good or ill, and sometimes both. Next, Tony Paniagua introduces a vivid example of someone whose life changed in an instant. Gabriel Schoen is a University of Arizona student who embraces every day, knowing how possible it is to lose it all. When Gabriel Schoen was growing up and thinking about a possible career, he was interested in a profession with good job prospects and pay. He had an older cousin who had become an engineer, so at the ripe old age of six or seven, Schoen decided what to study. I was inspired by his responsibility, his ability to provide for himself with such a stable career. When he was eight years old, Shern and his mother moved to a co-housing community in Prescott, Arizona, where he met older people with many skills. Eventually, he took an interest in a new subject. The piano developed into another passion in his life. Gabriel Schoen is now a University of Arizona senior. He's double majoring in chemical engineering and piano performance. He also enjoys poetry, swimming and biking, and volunteers with friends who play music at an assisted living home. I believe that um, life is a feast. All these opportunities are out there. and I'm, I just want to enjoy them. And he can also knit crafting handmade presents to give away. I started knitting while I was in Prescott at the Mountain Oak Waldorf School. And in fifth grade, it was about the lowest on my list of things that I wanted to do. I was super into football, a huge Patriots fan, so I wanted to do the macho stuff. And here we were sitting around in a circle knitting, and yet, when I got to college, Christmas came around and I really wanted to make special gifts for people. And I realized how much more it would mean 
to me as well as the recipient if I were to make their gift, if I were to put that time, that effort, that love into their present. It may seem like a lot, perhaps too much for a double major taking classes, labs, and having to rehearse, but Shern embraces the challenges, especially after a harrowing experience a few years ago. At any point in my life, I believe that the most important thing is like the present. In his freshman year in 2016, Shern was taking part in a mountain bike race in Tucson when he was involved in a very serious crash that resulted in trauma to his brain. If I hadn't been so fortunate, I could, I could be a mental vegetable. He was airlifted to a hospital where he stayed for nearly two weeks. I broke my wrist in two places and uh, I fractured my nose and uh, there was a little bit of brain bleeding. Fortunately, I've recovered miraculously from all that. Shern says he's thankful for each day and grateful to everyone who has inspired and molded him, including his friends, professors, and parents. The first person I would credit with the person that I am today is my mom. She has given so much of her life for me, and at the same time, she's given so much of her life for herself by undergoing a career change so late in her life while trying to raise me, switching from being a legal secretary to a teacher. So by doing that, she kind of showed me how to follow your passions. No matter how late you are in life, it's not too late to go for your dreams. Shern's father was an athlete and musician. He never smoked, but died of lung cancer at 69. My dad had a huge imprint on my life. He loved music more than anything, listening to it intently for hours a day, and running his heart out every day, and a gentle soul. Moving forward, Shern plans to continue his busy schedule, remaining curious and eager to explore. As I've had these deep life experience of my dad passing away and of this life-threatening bike crash, I wanted to, to really investigate or spend time on what, what I care about and what, what life means. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. To see a television story about Gabriel Shearn, tune in to Arizona Illustrated on Sunday at 6.30 p.m. on PBS 6. The story will also be available online at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.